when Copernicus first started his heliocentric theories, it was a hobby for him. He was formally trained in mathematics at a university, and after that he studied canon law, which is something like church administration. After that, he studied medicine so he could become the personal physician of a bishop, which he was for a while. And so it was there while he was studying medicine and practicing administration over a diocese in the church that Copernicus first started to sketch out his theories, which, as you know, were revolutionary. Copernicus had the nerve to say, when no one else believed it, that the earth was not the center of the universe, the sun was. The earth did not move every day, or rather the sun did not move every day, the earth did. The rest of the people all said, it's as plain as the nose on your face. You wake up in the morning and you look to the sky and you see that the sun is moving. What, how much more evidence do you need? Copernicus said the reason this is happening is because the earth is revolving around the sun and the earth is rotating in its axis every 24 hours. The earth is not even the only planet in the universe and every now and then when the seasons change, it's because the earth is tilted on its axis either towards or away from the sun and that's what's causing the seasonal changes. Nobody believed him. But nobody cared. Could say whatever he wanted. You can almost imagine it, can't you? They're just sort of listening to him saying, there he goes again. He's a mathematician and so his math was right. But historians say the further you go back and you get into his culture, the more you understand that the people who did not remain, that did not become persuaded by his arguments were only being sensible. The evidence was not there yet. It would not come for 50, 60, in some cases, more than 100 years later. But in spite of the evidence, his math was right. And so he kept saying these absurd things. Why did he say them? Well, some believe it was not only because of his math, it was because he had what they called a playful mind and a bold imagination. He believed that truth could be known by not just facts, but by aesthetics, by one's philosophy. And so Copernicus dared to speak. He finished his life in relative peace. The church at first resisted him, not the Catholic church, but the Protestant church, the kind of the holy trifecta back in those days was Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Philip Melanchthon. And Martin Luther, when he saw Copernicus's theories, he called him an upstart. He said, this man's a fool, and he's attempting to reverse all of the laws of astronomy. And Philip Melanchthon was even more harsh. He said, the man is indecent, and he's dishonest. Anyone should know that the Scripture teaches that it's the earth that is the center. And we are called by God to believe the Scriptures and so they marginalized him. They didn't punish him. They just didn't take him seriously. It wasn't uh, until four years before he died that he found a disciple who started to write his theories. Copernicus didn't even write his own theories. 
A young man came in and started taking his notes and with Copernicus' permission started to write them up. He wrote two rough drafts called First Report, Second Report, and then he died. The student, that is. And Copernicus was left with an unfinished manuscript. So he went out and found a Lutheran theologian to come and finish the work. What he didn't know was the Lutheran theologian himself, while friends with Copernicus, did not believe his theories. And so he actually wrote a fictitious introduction to Copernicus's book and said such things as, even if my ideas are wrong, at least the math is right. Copernicus himself did not know this, but he was already distancing himself from these radical views. It would be several years later before a young man named Galileo would turn a telescope to the sky and would start to prove that there were things to see that the human eye could not see, and that what the telescopes revealed, in fact, verified Copernicus's theories. He was a bold man, Galileo that was, and when the church heard about his ideas, they resisted him. That's the Catholic Church. So he had almost a war going on with the Catholic Church, but he had an agenda. He was trying to convince the laity to get an upswing. He wanted more people to believe it, so it would be hard for the church to deny it politically. And he also wanted to convince, they say, the church establishment of the inevitable. Galileo believed that the time would come when everyone would know that the sun was the center of the universe. And so he said it with his bold personality until one day when he was 70 years old the church summoned him to Rome they brought him in made him kneel before the tribunal asked him to recant everything he'd written and Galileo did it he said before the tribunal that he was sorry for what he'd written and that he would never write or say anything as long as he lived that the church had not first laid eyes on and verified that seemed to satisfy the church and so they moved him to a little apartment type living quarters didn't let hardly anyone go see him except one person that had special permission and he died in obscurity at the age of 78 I tell that story because it's one theory that we all assume is true today, but we seem to forget there was a day when nobody believed this stuff. And the first two people that said it with boldness went in opposite directions. There was one who said, with all humility, it still looks to me as if these theories are right, even though I do not have all of the evidence, even though all of the rhetoric and all of the media is on your side, it looks to me as if the world does not run the way that you say it runs. And then there was another who under pressure recanted. Daniel Borston writes, Copernicus seemed to have realized that he had only pushed the door ajar. He enjoyed giving his contemporaries a glimpse of what might be in store for them. 
This itself required courage, but he was not yet ready for a bold exploration of the new world. He did not because he could not yet realize how new was the new world he had just opened. For again, like Columbus, he was still relying heavily on ancient maps. I have a long story at the beginning of this to make this point. When the resurrection happened, it redrew the maps. It said to a world that was positive, everything runs just the way they say it. That the world is not as it seems to be. And I'm calling you this morning to be bold and to stand almost in defiance of the apparent lack of evidence that the things the resurrection has declared as true are in fact true. I want you to leave here in a few moments and I want you to say something out there that almost no one believes. And I want you to say it in spite of the rhetoric, in spite of the common view, in spite of what you have read or seen in the news. And I want you to say it with tenacity because I want you to know that when you say it, you're only reading the paper a thousand years from now. Like Copernicus, you're being marginalized as someone who is religious but not very bright. The fact of the matter is, you're just way ahead of your time. <laughs> so on that first Easter morning, Mark says the women were headed to the tomb and they were asking themselves the question, who will roll away the stone? This was an ongoing discussion, he said. It's a great sermon. Someone should preach it. I never have, but others have. The sermon is this. There are things in your life that only God can move. You need to have done. Only God can do them. What are those things? He will roll away the stone. Someday when I'm better, I'll preach that sermon. I, I want to focus instead on Matthew's version of this, and here's why. Because I can never understand what Mark meant by that. The women were asking themselves, who will roll away the stone? I mean, this should be plain as the nose on your face. Because Mark also told us that on the day he was buried, Joseph of Arimathea himself rolled the stone in front of the door. So if you want to know who's going to roll away the stone, ladies, wait till Joseph gets up. Ask him to come along. He'll move it back, and then you can anoint Jesus. Do you see what I mean? It just doesn't make sense. If one man can move it in place, why can't he move it out of place? Matthew answers the question. Matthew's the only one to mention a seal. He's the only one to mention the soldiers. Think about this. He's the only one to mention a conspiracy. He's the only one to mention an earthquake. For Matthew... The resurrection is not just a miracle. It's a case of one-on-one. -on -one. God is going against the establishment. Here's what I mean. On the day he was buried, the women went in Matthew's gospel and sat, watch the language, 
opposite the tomb, in opposition to the tomb. The image can't be missed. That is one reality, and the women are pictured as almost opposing the reality. So they watched Joseph roll the stone in front of the door, and the following day, the priests, that's the pastors, went to Pilate and they said to him, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body. So Pilate said, Take a guard and go. Make the tomb secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. The seal in many cases was just clay packed in on the crevice. They would roll the stone in front of the door. They would pack the clay to make it as airtight as they could. But since the seal that Matthew's talking about came from Pilate, it is believed that it was more of an official insignia. It was not supposed to stay there forever. It was supposed to stay there for three days. So it was more something like this. You have to imagine that there's a wall, much like a stone wall on the back of this sanctuary right here. And in this wall was a door where you would go inside the tomb, lay the body down, come out, and then roll the stone in front of the door. You would then pack it with clay. But when Pilate is involved, and so people do not tamper with the grave, it is believed that there is a cord, something like police tape, you know, that says, do not cross this boundary. There's been a crime scene. It's like that. It went from one end of a wall across the door to the other side of the door and attached itself to the wall. There was probably two large seals of wax against the cord with the insignia of the government. They then put a sentry of guards standing outside of the tomb. This explains why the women were worried about moving the stone. The reason they don't wake up Joseph of Arimathea and say, dude, you moved it, unmove it, is because this is government property. And there's guards posted there at the permission of Pilate. Now you must see, in your imagination, the stone is something like a seal, and it seals off the person who is back there in that world from all the people out here in this world. So I think in Matthew's imagination, he sees the stone as almost a wall that separates two worlds. There is the one back there where he is, and there is the one out here where we are. There is the one back there 
who has one who made the world, and then out here in this world is everybody who runs it. And so three times when the guards are posted, did you notice I read it to you? Three times the words were used, make it secure. So there is this kind of concentrated attempt to make sure that the stone doesn't move. It says, we heard this guy say on the third day he'd rise again. So go make the tomb secure. In the original language, the term literally means to be in charge of something. It's a compound word. And it means to command it. So what they were saying was, go take charge of that tomb. So Pilate said, here's a couple guards. You go take charge. So they went and they took charge. Because they didn't want anyone out here breaking in. What they didn't know is that the one in it was fixing to break out. Wish I could have been a fly on the wall when those priests, those are pastors by the way, had a meeting with the church board. Those are the elders. And they said to him, we've talked to the soldiers. And the soldiers said, there was an earthquake. Almost knocked them out. They said they saw an angel come down from heaven. Matthew 28, they're still conscious. Sat on the stone that had been moved. As if he was almost conquering it. And that's when we got nervous. We were so scared, we almost died. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all of the leaders listening to this story? And they're thinking to themselves, if that stone's been moved, there's only two people can move it. Somebody out here or somebody back there. And they all just said, out here, that they didn't do it. That means, you can almost hear some guy in the back go, uh-oh. <laughs> Jesus is not only making a theological statement, he's rewriting the laws of physics. Because most people believe that heaven comes after you die. Most people believe that heaven is up there or back there removed from this earth. Wherever heaven is, it's somewhere else and then there's earth. But if the one back there just moved that stone and came out, what that all means is the world is not what we thought it was. It's not a matter of saying, when I die, I'm going to go back there and live with Jesus. It's a matter of saying, 
He's already alive and he just got out living with you. So it's not about you going to be with Jesus in heaven if the stone's been moved and he's gone ahead of you into Galilee. He is loose on this earth and he is a force to be reckoned with. And the wall that used to separate the here and now with the then and there just got moved so you can leave the here and now, step into the then and there like Peter and John did, and then step out of it again back into the here and now and you didn't even die. You're still alive. You thought you had to die to go be with Jesus. You thought you had to die to be in holy ground. This is not true. When he gets out and goes ahead of you into Galilee, Galilee is holy ground. <laughs> See all the church? I mean, look at, I mean, you're looking at me like chief priests and elders. This is why I say he's not rewriting theology. He's rewriting physics. He's saying there is a realm, there is a dimension, there is a reality that is leaking from the eternal into the present. But because people in the present are still using ancient maps, they can't see it. But it's there. It's there. What a truth. I ask myself, why, if you're the religious leaders, why would you not welcome this? Why would you not say, oh, we have new data? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I think it's this. What's back here is not just a man. It's not even just a God. It's a kingdom. It's a whole new way of life. So when the stone gets moved, everything he said has been validated and let loose in the world. And what he said, people, was truly revolutionary. What he said was, we should honor our word. We should keep our vows. We should forgive our enemies. We should love our neighbors. We should deny ourselves. We should take up our crosses. Do you see what I mean? I'm not saying that some are often fond of saying, yeah, see what I mean? It's just the church. It's always the church. It's always the religious people who get in the way of Jesus. Now, I don't think that's true. I think if God is your father, the church is your mother. But what it means is it is possible to become so insulated inside of our religious systems that we fail to hear how truly radical are his statements. It is possible to become so busy worshiping God that we fail to stop and realize we're not even like God. 
Even while we worship him, we're not like God. You say, boy, that's too negative. Okay, I ask you, do you forgive your enemies? All of them. Have you forgiven ISIS? Have you forgiven the people who persecute you? Have you kept your word? Do you honor your vows? Do you give your money to the poor? Then why do you still have so much? Do you forgive your enemies? Do you hear what I'm saying? We can come and hear sermons about this and believe that because we tolerate them, we are the same as the man behind that door. I'm telling you, we are insulated inside of our systems. And when that stone gets moved and he gets out, there's an entirely different worldview out here that we are just not used to seeing. Do you see what I mean? We have to become bolder about these things and say these things in places where almost no one believes them. Exhale. These are two worldviews. Two entirely different worldviews. One of them said, like the women did, he's alive. And not only that, he has gone on ahead of you into Galilee. (laughs) Let me translate that. He's not just alive, he is active in this world. That is one worldview. The veil separating the two worlds has been removed. And the other worldview is that of the soldiers who said, his body may not be in the grave, I'll give you that, but it's because his disciples came and stole him. See, we know how this works. See, we have the rules. We have all the research. We know the truth. This is how the world works. And so if his body's not in there, it has to be another explanation. Had to be that his disciples came and stole the body. It does not matter that there are too many holes in the argument. It's what they hold to. And I ask you this morning, which world you believe in. Really. Really. Are y'all waiting to go see Jesus? Or do you know that Jesus is alive and well right now? If you put him back there, safe, removed, in his place, tame, Quiet. Or is he still free to say some revolutionary things that will turn your little world on its head? What kind of Jesus? What kind of Jesus? What kind of world? I found myself watching the news this week. I watched ISIS do what ISIS does. I watched Baltimore burn and I look at our cities and I see crime, I see human trafficking, I see persecution of the religious. 
I see drugs and violence and corruption of power. And I think to myself, what kind of world is this? You ever feel that way? You ever feel that way? Jeez, this is getting worse. And then I hit Matthew. And Matthew says, only one person could have moved that stone and he did it against their wishes. And he didn't invite all the disciples in. He flat busted himself out. And he is active and alive in the world right now. That's where you'll find him. Not in heaven, waiting for you with a crown in his hand. You'll find him in Galilee where you don't want to go. But that's where you'll find him. Because the veil has been moved. The eternal is active. And I thought to myself at the end of the week, what kind of world is this? Seems like it's getting better. If that stone's been moved, then you can take your prayers into a quiet closet and you can say them in secret. And God will hear you. Do you know why? Because he's in the closet. But if that stone has not been moved, if Jesus is still safe in his heaven, you better stand on the street corner and pray like fury. Because you and I both know that prayer doesn't change anything. It just changes you. But if he has moved that stone, you should pray for things you never had the nerve to ask for before. Because <laughs> he might take you seriously and actually pull it off. If that stone has not been moved, then everything I am telling you is in the future. The meek shall inherit the earth. The pure in heart shall see God. The poor in spirit shall own the kingdom. The peacemakers shall be called the kingdom of God. And someday, on the other side of that stone, we will be seated with him in the heavenlies. But if that stone just got moved, then the meek already inherit the earth. You just don't know it. The poor in spirit already own the place, but you can't tell it. You are already seated in the heavenlies, which you keep mistaking for earth. And the pure in heart already see God because they can't not see Him if the stone has been moved. Do you see what I'm talking about? It's an entirely different world. So go tell them. Go tell them. You're going to feel like you don't have enough facts. There aren't enough people with power backing you, but you have to say it anyway. Because as I said before, you are only reading the paper a thousand years from now. When everybody figures this out, it's going to look like you just had common sense. So tell them. And what should you tell them? 
Tell them that the resurrection has already started. Tell them that you can't stop it. Tell them that the kingdoms of this world are on their way to becoming the kingdoms of our God. And He will reign forever and ever. Tell them that there is coming a day. No, that day is now. When God will scatter those who are proud, He will bring incompetent rulers down, and He will lift up the humble, and He will fill their mouths with good things. This will not come from on top. It will not be an official order. Organization. It will not come from the intelligentsia or at least from their minds. And it will not cost a lot of money. It will be an army of God-fearing, Christ-following, disciple-making believers who will spread out across the earth and live as faithful witnesses in quiet places. And it's already started. You can be one of them, but you won't have to make it happen. And guess what? You can't stop it. And if you are one of them, you should know that other people from your own religion, even your own church, will oppose you. They will make it hard for you. They will call meetings and disagree with you. And you might become disillusioned thinking that these fine people should know better. But you must not villainize them. And you don't have to convince them. Time itself will prove your message to be right. So do not become angry with them. Let the wheat and the tares grow up together. And let God decide what happens to either in the end. Stay in your place. Practice the ethics of the one who was once behind the stone. And is now loose in the world. And do not Hate your enemies. Pray for your enemies. They are only living as if the stone had not been moved. They're still using ancient maps. And tell his disciples, don't back down. Don't separate your work or your hobby or your weekends into some secular domain. Do you not see if the stone has been moved There is no secular domain. Go and tell them. He is on the loose. He is going ahead of you. The maps have been redrawn. The landscape has changed. The momentum has shifted. The future has arrived. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God. And He will reign forever and ever. Amen. And the skeptic said, (laughs) there he goes again. You wait and see. You just wait and see. Now the scriptures. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. Fix your eyes not on things you can see but on things you can't see. For what you can see is temporary. But what you can't see 
is eternal. Learn to see. And fix your eyes upon Jesus. Why? Because you are even now surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. You are now in the midst of the witnesses. They are not in the grandstands waiting for you. They're in the game with you. Lay aside everything that so easily entangles you like the sin And run with perseverance the race that has been marked out in advance for you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do this, he says, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Why? Because we have here no abiding city. We seek a city that is to come whose architect and designer is God. I know all these verses. I just don't know what they mean. If you think you know what they all mean, I'm afraid of you. I speak better than I know because I speak the word of God. I just quoted him. But I'm right. I know I'm right because he said it, not me. He calls things that are not as though they were and they come to be. He's out and he's loose.